Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 10, open up your Bibles. We're going to do the whole chapter this morning. It's only 20 verses. Why do you laugh? I don't. The chapter begins, now, Nadab and Abihu, I know we say Nadab and Abihu, but it's Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 10 is a shocking disruption to what should have otherwise been a glorious priestly ordination. Seven days have gone by, seven days of holy rites and offerings, seven days of of things being done to meticulous standards by the ordinances of God there in the courtyard of the tabernacle, morning offerings, evening offerings, sin offerings, burnt offerings, uh, the peace offerings were given, grain offerings throughout the week. These were all given up to the Lord. I mentioned on Wednesday night the only offering that was not given during the week was the guilt offering because guilt wasn't an issue. That all week long, this was ordination of the Aaronic priesthood. That is the priesthood of Aaron. Not ironic, Aaronic. Or as some Jewish scholars say, the Aaronide priesthood. I think they say that because they don't want it to sound like ironic. But all week long, this has been a beautiful time of of expression to the glory of God and of, of worship and the people gather around. Something very, very special is happening until the eighth day when the unthinkable happens, unimaginable. I mean, no one saw this coming. How many times have you said that recently? (laughs) No one saw this coming. We had no idea. Listen, the Bible deals with real life. And in both the Bible and in real life, triumph and tragedy often go hand in hand. Jesus went from baptized and beloved to bitterly bombarded by the devil in the wilderness. Or in a story not unlike the one before us today. The surging compassion of the young church, Acts chapters three and four, was followed by the scandalous casualties of two people, a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, who died as they lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter five. And with the turn of a page, Leviticus goes from the glory of the Lord to a gut-wrenching punishment. Humorist Gene Shepard, who wrote a Christmas story, said, life is like that. Sometimes at the height of our revelry, when our joy is at its zenith, when all is most right with the world, the most unthinkable disasters descend upon us. Now in the movie, that's when the bumpus hounds come crashing through the house and eat their turkey on Christmas Day. We're talking about far worse than that. Oh, we've all had those experiences where things are going so well and then you get a flat tire or you burn the dinner or something goes wrong. You go, ah, I was having such a good day. This goes far beyond that. This is, again, triumph followed by great tragedy. More convictingly, 
Bible scholar Gordon Winham says the following. These glaring contrasts are upsetting to the cozy bourgeois attitudes that often pass for Christianity. In many parts of the church, the biblical view of divine judgment is conveniently forgotten or supposed to be something that passed away with the Old Testament. This short story is therefore an affront to liberal thinkers. It should also challenge Bible-believing Christians whose theological attitudes are influenced by prevailing trends of thought more often than they realize. This is one thing I love about the Word of God is it challenges my acceptance of the prevailing trains of thought, the trends around us. It stops me and makes me say, wait a minute, no, that's not the way it is. That's not okay. That is actually sin. And today's prevailing trends of thought seem to have no idea of the gravity of God's righteous judgment. We come to a story like this and we suddenly are reminded he is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And as the old saying goes, if you play with fire, you will get burned. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Remember that word jealous is only used of God in the scriptures, Kana. He's a zealous God, passionate for his people. Deuteronomy 32.22, for a fire is kindled in my anger, he says, and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Psalm 21, verse 9. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Oh, that's Old Testament. Jesus said in Mark, or Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. And then he says in verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 10, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Getting uncomfortably warm yet? These are the scriptures. This is the word of God. Well, it was the first full day. Leviticus chapter 10 of the newly ordained priesthood of Israel. I want you to put yourself for a moment, if you can, into Aaron's shoes. Think of what it was to be the high priest in this moment. He must have been so proud to share this with his four boys. What a remarkable thing, not only to enter into this priesthood, but to do so with his sons until dreadful judgment fell. Let's unpack the story. I'm gonna do it in four parts, and the first part is strange fire. If you're taking notes, jot this down, strange fire, verse one again of chapter 10. Now Dadab, whose name means generous, and Avahu, whose name means he's my father, the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The word strange is Zara. 
in Hebrew. Zara, which translates illegitimate. This was an illegitimate fire, or it translates unauthorized. It also can translate loathsome and nauseating. Which is it? I think either way, it was highly offensive to the Lord. It was an unauthorized fire that was loathsome to the Father and was out of line with his divine directives. How so? Well, Nadab and Abihu ad-libbed. I don't know if it's because they got caught up in the spectacle of what was taking place around them or perhaps they saw it as their moment to shine. But God's holy tabernacle was no place for improvisation. So what was it that made the fire strange? It's a good question. We don't know exactly. We can make some educated guesses. We can say, well, perhaps it was that they burned the incense in the wrong place flashing their own personal fire pans there in the courtyard rather than at the altar in the holy place, which was where incense was to be offered. And perhaps they lit them up at the wrong time of the day. Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 says, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, that is the altar of incense. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So perhaps they were just doing it at the wrong time. But then it says, Exodus 30, verse nine, you shall not offer any strange incense, that is Zara, any strange incense on this altar. So maybe that was the problem. Maybe the incense in their fire pans was their own special homemade blend. And it wasn't what God had required, what he had explained or described for his incense. Maybe they ignited their incense and their fire pans from a place other than the altar from which it had to come. You had to take the fire from the altar for the fire pan to take it in to offer the incense. There was a direct location the fire was to come from. You know what? One of the fastest ways to burn out as a follower of Jesus Christ is to offer up strange fire that does not originate from the altar of Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? self-lit, personally powered religion based on our attitudes, our opinions, our traditions. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us, literally holds us together. I like that. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We go to the altar for any fire to serve. That the altar, the cross, that's the origin of our faith. That's the place we go. That's what we emulate. So that, again, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Behalf. We are called to be a people who sacrifice our own personal wants and desires and needs. Why? Because of the cross of Christ and for the sake of others. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no alternative to the fire that comes from the altar of the Lord, the fire of self-sacrifice. And our motivation for anything done in the name of Christ is Christ, 
is the cross. Why do you serve? Why do you sacrifice? Why do you do anything difficult in the name of Jesus? You do it because of Jesus and for Jesus to honor and to glorify Jesus. And remember with all this that the only way to approach the holy God is the way which he has provided, which was through the altar the altar of sacrifice. Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord. He has a way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. I know I like to sneak that verse in as often as possible. What I'm saying here is that to try to approach the holy God any other way than through Jesus and his cross, one way or another, you're gonna end up burned. You try to Follow Jesus, but again, in your own power, with your own fire originating from your own self, you're gonna burn out, you're gonna wear out, you're gonna get exhausted, you're not gonna be able to continue. You gotta go through Jesus. And if you want to or think you can get to God any other way but through Jesus, you will end up burned. Verse two, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Note that. They died before the Lord. We are left with no doubt as to both the presence and the responsibility of God here for their deaths. This was God's move. This is what he did. He is the righteous judge. He is the one they fell before. And he's the one that we must all face. But one way or another, now or then, all will come to face the holy God. Hebrews 4.13 says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I have that highlighted in my Bible. With him with whom we have to do. And that is unequivocal. That is followers of Jesus. That is those who trust in the Lord. And that is every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth will have to deal with him, will have to come before him with whom we have to do. There's no alternative to that. And he is a holy God. And we think we can just show up by our own strength, with our own fire, doing whatever we want, approaching him our way, because our way feels good for me. This is my truth. I wanna walk in my way of doing things. There's one way. There is only one. By the way, verse two, you might notice, repeats word for word what just happened with the burnt offering and the peace offerings on the altar. Look at chapter nine, verse 24. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And then verse two of chapter 10, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. It's almost the same verse, except in the one case, that fire consumed the offerings, this fire consumes the priests. 
That fire was followed by a shout and face-down worship. This fire was followed by stunned silence. Verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Again, where? Did we ever get the idea that we could approach the holy God on our terms? Why have we ever thought that we could do it our way? Ad-libbing, improvising our way up to the throne of heaven. I just want to show up however we want. And it'll be fine. It's all good. It's not all good. He's all good. And we are not. One way. One way, and it's not a strange way. It's a very personal way. Well, verse four continues. Moses also called to Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, who said to them, come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Wow. They try to offer strange fire. Fire comes out from the presence of the Lord. That is right out of the front of the tabernacle and just consumes them. And now, now as their relatives come in and carry the smoldering corpses of these burned out boys outside the camp, Aaron and his remaining sons had to silently, number two, sally forth. Sally forth. It's a 1540s middle French phrase that means to surge or to charge forward specifically by troops in a surrounded place to advance against their attackers. But how do you advance against this? Again, place yourself in the position of Aaron or if not Aaron, how about one of the other two sons? How about being in the position of Eleazar or Ithamar? And consider the situation that they are in. And verse six, Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you will not die and that he will not become wrathful against the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, they shall bewail the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting or you will die for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. They couldn't wail, they couldn't mourn, they couldn't shed a tear, they couldn't engage in the customary rites of mourning, burying their heads, tearing the clothes. The high priest was never to have contact with the dead, so he couldn't even go up to his sons. And in the anointed garments, they were not allowed to join in with what immediately became a funeral service Sally forth, don't break ranks, keep to the code. Aaron had just witnessed his two sons burned to death in fiery judgment. Eliezer and Ithamar watched their older brothers scorched with sudden death. And they're supposed to just keep ministering? How do you do that? How do you follow Jesus in the midst of tragedy? How do you 
continue serving the Lord when everything around you just burned up? How do you follow him when your heart is broken and you're in the midst of sudden trauma? I've called this teaching ministry through the fire. I've always in the past thought about the sin of Nadab and Abihu and the problem and, and really focused in on that. This time around looking at this, I'm thinking about Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar and how they were to continue in their priestly role when this horrific event had just taken place. Could you? How would you handle it? How would you deal with it? Moses says, don't do. The rest of the congregation will take care of the funeral service. You can't attend. You can't even leave the court. You keep going. You keep doing. You're in your priestly service. You continue to minister. But, 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 but Moses, these are my sons. Moses, these are my brothers. Skip down to verse 12. Moses spoke to Aaron and to his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, saying, take the grain offering that is left over from the Lord's offerings by fire and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. He says, you are to eat it moreover in a holy place because it is your due and your sons due out of the Lord's offerings by fire, for thus I have commanded, or I have been commanded. And he says, the breast of the wave offering, however, and the thigh of the offering, you may eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they have been given as your due and your sons due out of the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the sons of Israel. The thigh offered by lifting up and the breast offered by waving, they shall bring along with the offerings by fire of the portions of fat to present as a wave offering before the Lord, so it shall be a thing perpetually. Do you and your sons with you, just as the Lord had commanded. For crying out loud, Moses, where's your humanity? This goes right on with instruction. You need to eat the unleavened grain offering and, and, and get the breast of the, of the other. Come on, sit down. Let's continue. Do what you gotta do. This is part of the deal. Where's your compassion, man? Could you sit down to lunch? After this just took place, sally forth. Don't break ranks. Keep to the code. Please listen. I thought about this all week long. How do you do this? How do you continue to minister and serve in tragedy and trauma? The best way, the best way to handle heartache is to continue to love and serve other people. I wanna repeat that. The best way to handle heartache is to continue to love and to serve other people. I'm not saying ignore sorrow, disregard pain, toughen up, no. But rather than deep diving into depression or despair, staying in step with Jesus is how we move through both the triumphs and the tragedies of this life. It's how we continue because we recognize something. And that is for all the triumphs and for all the tragedies, this life is temporary. I think of John Corson kind of a hero of mine, great Bible teacher. And I think of him 
giving the memorial service for his 16-year-old daughter, Jessie, when she died in a car accident in the same icy spot that killed his first wife. And John, you can, it's among the teachings in Applegate Christian Fellowship. You can actually go and watch John teach the memorial for his daughter, Jessie, and it's stunning, the peace that he has. 25 years later, February of last year, John Corson preached his oldest son, Peter John's memorial. And he was right back to teaching Wednesday night of that week. And if you just tuned in, by the way, on that Wednesday night following the memorial service just a few days before, you'd have no idea. You'd have no idea. It's great teaching. Good, sound, solid Bible teaching. Where's your compassion, man? He's moving in Christ. He's ministering through the fire. That's what it looks like. I think of Levi Lusco. Some of you know his story back in 2012. Bringing a Christmas Eve message to his church four days after his five-year-old daughter, Linya, suddenly died of severe asthma. Ministry through the fire. Or I think of, and turn in your Bibles with me, I think of Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 24. You gotta see this. Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 24. Now Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon at the same time Jeremiah was prophesying in Jerusalem. So Babylon, mighty Babylon, has already taken exiles. They've taken them in waves. And before the last wave of the exiles was taken, Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's in Babylon, one of the exiles, but a prophet prophesying to God's people who were taken into captivity. See, even in captivity, God's talking to his people. Even in lockdowns. God's talking to his people and caring for and loving for and having plans for his people. And so Ezekiel's there and he's prophesying and he does some weird stuff, Ezekiel. It's a great book to study through, but watch this. Ezekiel 24, verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, he says, saying, son of man, behold, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow, but you shall not mourn and you shall not weep and your tears shall not come. Hold it, wait, what? What are you saying, Lord? It's as if the Lord said, Rick, I'm gonna take Cheryl and I'm gonna take her with a blow and you can't go to the funeral and you cannot memorialize and you cannot weep and you cannot be tearful. The desire, he says, of your eyes, it's a way of, of saying, I'm gonna take your sweetheart. I'm gonna take your beloved. He's talking about his wife. I'm gonna take your wife with a blow, and again, you shall not mourn, you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Verse 17, groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, and put shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, will you not tell us what these things that you are doing, 
mean to us or for us? And then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power. It's talking about the temple back in Jerusalem. The desire of your eyes and the delight of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword and you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache and you will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads, your shoes will be on your feet. You will not mourn and you will not weep, but you will rot away in your iniquities and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done. You will do when it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. You know, there's something that is bigger than any of our heartache or heartbreak, and that is the knowledge that he is God. Something more significant than any pain you or I may ever have felt or may ever feel is the fact that he alone is God. He is the Lord, and he would be known by you. He wants to be known by me because he sees something again that I just mentioned a few minutes ago that we ought to be tuned into, and that is that this is temporary. This is temporary, that is eternal. He's calling us to the eternal. And he is eternal, he wants us to know him. You read this Ezekiel story, you say, how can God do something like that? Listen, it's not just pastors, or prophets, or even the people of God sallying forth and carrying on to prove our faith. You know what it is? It's his strength. When it gets tough, it's his power that sustains his people. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How do you continue to care about other people when your own life is a shambles? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can you love someone else when you've lost the love of your life? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's not to prove how amazingly faithful I am. Because you know if you've gone through tragedy, you know it is not your strength. It's not something that you have inside that you can just work off of or feed off of for a time. You got nothing. When you're reeling from the painful heartbreak, you got nothing to give, but you can give. You got no way to love, but you can love. How? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in serving and in loving other people, especially in hard times, that's when the strength of the Lord becomes manifest, clearly seen. I, I, not, not so much, I'm not even concerned so much about others seeing that, but that's when I see it. That's when I'm aware of his strength, especially when it comes to death. Listen, if you've lost someone recently, I am not meaning to be insensitive or to disregard the pain that comes with that loss. But listen to what Jesus said regarding the resurrection of the dead, Matthew twenty two thirty one. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
Well, they're old dead guys, right? No, they're living. I am the God of Abraham, he says. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I'm their God right now, Jesus said. This is temporary. That is eternal. That is the perspective. It's living beyond the grave that this world does not understand. I'll tell you what, the reason why the governments of the world are so freaked out by coronavirus is they don't understand life beyond the grave. We have to stop this now. We have to protect life as long as, you know, we can't, we can't all go to the... And I'm not saying, hey, bring it on, I want to die. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there is something in the heart of a believer in Jesus that says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. To what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you hear that? He said, God of the living. He says, living hope. And that's not just an Easter Sunday mentality. Oh, a living hope from the resurrection. That's cool. That'll that'll be a great Resurrection Sunday teaching. No, it's daily life for everyone who follows Jesus. Tears will flow. Sorrow will come, and it should But ours is a hope that transcends even the worst of days, even being in the courtyard on the eighth day of the ordination of Aaron and his sons. As the burnout happens, even on that day, there's a hope that transcends. There is a higher reality. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings, and that Greek word for sufferings, guess what it means? Sufferings. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yeah, you're gonna hurt, you're gonna ache, you're gonna have moments where you're not sure you can even go on, and that's when the strength is available. And that's when you begin to realize as painful as it is now, we are headed for then. And then is assured. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 15. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. Back it up. Let's start in verse 12. Boy, I could back it up to the beginning of the chapter. Let's back up to verse 11. Let's we'll start there. Verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. It's Paul talking. You want to talk about tragedy. You want to talk about hardship and difficult life. From the moment Paul said yes to Jesus, his life was ruined. Gloriously, wonderfully ruined. And Paul says, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. That's what I'm talking about. Delivered over to death in the face of hardship, and yet the life of Jesus is in us, is seen in us, is known in us, is experienced in our mortal flesh. He says, so death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith 
Therefore, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with you, or with Jesus, and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound, note this, to the glory of God. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's the deal. And that's the the perspective, the understanding that takes me beyond whatever hardship I might face, whatever painful circumstance, whatever loss. The life of Jesus is at work in the inner man, in the inner woman. But you know, go back to Leviticus 10 and realize this. Don't think for a moment that God is callous to the loss of Aaron The sons are judged and he just goes, deal with it. Walk it off. Toughen up. The Lord knows exactly what Aaron is feeling. Part three. Part three. Going back to verse eight now in Leviticus 10. Part three, I'm gonna call the sensitive father. The sensitive father. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Stop right there. This is the only time in Torah where God speaks directly to Aaron. Every other time it's through Moses. Now he speaks to Aaron. He talks to the father who has lost his son. This is a father to father conversation. And he says two things that Aaron desperately needed to hear. Watch this, verse nine. Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the the unclean and the clean. Two things that Aaron needed to hear. First of all, the reason. The reason. If anything in this father's broken heart cried out, why? The reason. This was not a random, arbitrary judgment. You read verse nine and you almost wonder, well, that seems a little out of place, kind of like a little temperance ordinance just popped in there in the middle of this tragedy. In fact, what the old rabbis have long taught and I agree with is that Nadab and Abihu were drunk and that's why they offered strange fire. They were not in their right mind, they were not thinking clearly And note that Aaron makes no defense of their behavior, not a word about it, which may imply that he knew that they had been drinking, that he knew that they were a bit on the tipsy side. And this seems to be what was behind this lapse of judgment in lighting the strange fire. Just let the Bible tell you what what God feels about drinking. I'm just gonna let the Bible tell you. I'm not gonna give commentary on it. It's too easy. 
Proverbs chapter 20, verse one, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, 29, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And I would add, who wants these things on your list of daily chores? (laughs) Says those who linger long over wine. So the Bible equates drinking and ongoing drinking with woe, sorrow, contentions, complaining, and wounds and redness of eyes. Proverbs 31, verse four, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And Nadab and Abihu were in the service of all Israel when they offered up this strange fire when they made the moment about themselves rather than about their service to the family, to the people, and more importantly, to the Lord. The prophet Hosea, chapter four, verse 11, says harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. We know they do. We know It's not new information. Alcohol lowers your inhibitions. We know that. Amazingly, that's why some people drink. I'm too uptight, I gotta drink before I go to the party so I'm a little more relaxed. (laughs) Okay, Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. I like to put it this way, that dissipates. It's emptiness. But be filled with the Spirit. All right, Rick, what's the big deal with the occasional imbibe? Hey, God's people, listen. The issue here is not drinking. The issue is calling. What is your calling? This is not like the the old, what was it, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign from years ago back in the 80s. Just say no. No, forget about saying no. Say yes. Say yes. It's not about saying no to alcohol. It's about saying yes to the Spirit of God. Yes to that kind of filling Yes, to the Lord. But look again at verse 10. So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and in these last days, this is becoming absolutely critical. What is? Your ability to discern between what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad and what is holy and what is unholy, what is clean and what is unclean. Part of the reason that Aaron and sons were forbidden from outwardly moaning and from outwardly mourning is this was a punishment for something that was profane. What Nadab and Abahu did was unholy. It was unclean. It was a profane action. Let me explain it this way. We are not to mourn wrongdoing. We are not, as followers of Jesus, to honor unholy conduct. Did you see that? That was kind of cool. No, no. And we've gotten so, just our entertainment, just our movies have caused us to exalt and to celebrate sin. Come to the apex in the movie. And something that you know in any other circumstance is sinful happens and the hero gets away with it and you go, (laughs) no. 
We don't gloss over unclean things, pretend like they don't exist, ignore them, look the other way. And we don't make heroes out of sinners. Sorrow? Yes. Compassion for lost people? Absolutely. But we are not to minimize or give tacit approval to unrighteousness, which again is why the Lord says, you don't come in here even a bit tipsy. So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, you've got to be discerning. You've got to be sober-minded, not boring, not dull, and not glum, but sober, clear-headed, sharp in your thinking. The reason for all this, Aaron, this wasn't a random judgment. You know what your sons did. But the second thing the Lord says, again, directly to Aaron, is reassurance, reassurance. Look at verse 11. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Aaron, I still want you to teach my people. Aaron, I I still need you to serve. You're still my man, Aaron. You're still my high priest. Now, this is gonna make more sense to you in just a second. But Aaron needed to understand what Ezekiel the prophet would, would prophesy that the Lord would speak through Ezekiel chapter 18, verse four. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine and the soul who sins will die. The Lord encourages Aaron that he yet has a significant role to play teaching holiness to the people but he's also saying to Aaron, look, whatever happened here, I'm not holding you responsible. We might say, well, he's the dad. And if, in fact, Abhu and Nadab were drinking, he should have stopped it. He should have known. He should have done something about that. The Lord is speaking to Aaron, you're my man. You're my high priest. I need you to teach Israel. 1 Peter 1.14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior because it is written, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, you shall be holy for I am holy. Ministry through the fire is realizing that through our service, there are many more other people we not, may not even be aware of who will be saved from the burning. A burning takes place, you keep ministering because someone else is gonna get saved. You stay with it because someone else will be, as it were, snatched out of the fire. Through your faithful continuance, through your teaching, your ministering, your loving, Aaron, others are gonna come to know me. Others will follow and understand the holiness of God. And so father to father, the Lord goes directly to Aaron with reason and with reassurance. But note this. The strange fire of Nadab and Abihu was not the only priestly fail on that day. Part four. Call this the sin offering foregone. Verse 16. But Moses, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it had been burned up. So he was angry with Aaron's surviving sons, Eliezer 
and Ithamar, saying, why did you not eat the sin offering at the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since its blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. This was a big deal. Not only has this burning happened, but Moses looks over and realizes a major ordinance has just been overlooked, blown off. And in light of what had happened to the first two sons of Aaron, he didn't want to see the same thing happen to the second two sons of Aaron because they didn't do it right. So he calls them out for it. He's upset about this. Listen, this is important. They didn't, they didn't just eat their portion of the sin offering for filler food. The priest had a portion. Remember this, we talked about this. The sin offering was offered and there was a priestly portion that they were required to eat and it wasn't just so that they could have a little barbecue that day. The whole point of eating the sin offering, they ate it, the Bible says, to bear away the sins of the congregation. There was something, note this, that the priest was taking on himself, was ingesting, was consuming himself that was part of this sin offering. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he consumed our sin on the cross. That he not only was the sin offering, but ate of the sin offering swallowing wrath that belonged on our backs for our sake. And so in the sin offering of Israel, when the priest gave the sin offering, he had to eat to bear away, quote, to bear away the sins of the congregation. So even the priestly eating was part of the offering. And so Moses sees that the goat was just burnt up, not eaten at all, and he is angry. Hopping mad after what has just taken place in the courtyard that day, because doing the offerings right was clearly a concern. By the way, I think it's also interesting that he speaks directly to Aaron's remaining sons and not to Aaron. He doesn't go to their father about this. Why did your sons not do what they were supposed to do? <laughs> Probably because Moses knew his brother. Moses recognized that the day had had more than enough trouble of its own for their dad. And so he talks to the sons, why did you do this? Why, the whole thing's burned up. But Aaron overhears, and Aaron responds. Now watch this, verse 19. But Aaron spoke to Moses, behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offerings before the Lord. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? I should just sit here and let you wrestle with this one for a bit. What is he saying? Because I had to all week long. It's not fair. What is he saying? Listen again. Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these, and yes, he is talking about Nadab and Abihu. When things like these happened to me, if I had eaten a sin offering today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord. First of all, this is the only clue in the entire chapter of the heartache and the pain that Aaron was feeling. It's the only acknowledgement that we hear out of his mouth, this is a bad day. What's happened to me here? But listen, 
Aaron is not saying, how can you expect me to hold it together in the midst of such a tragedy? What he's saying, and, and, and listen, get this. What he's expressing is reverence to God and the holiness of this sacrifice. Listen, the sin offering wasn't forsaken or forgotten. It was intentionally foregone. What do you mean? I mean Aaron and sons intentionally did not eat this meal. They purposefully burned up the entire goat on the altar and did not eat the meat that they were supposed to eat of the sin offering. Why? When was the only time, Bible students, see if you know this, I didn't, I had to look it back up, so don't feel bad if you don't know it. When was the only time a priest was not to eat the meat of the sin offering? Do you know? It's when he offers it for himself. When the high priest or when a priest offers his own sin offering, he does not eat of it. He offers the whole thing on the altar to the Lord. <laughs> Are we saying that Aaron sinned here? No. It wasn't just that he couldn't eat it. It's that Aaron took responsibility for the sins of his sons. It's that Aaron looked at what happened and said, I know I'm offering this sin offering. We're offering the sin offering for the people, but it's our sin. We own what has just taken place here in this courtyard. And Aaron didn't want to defile the sacrifice because of what may have been in his own heart, because of his culpability. And you might say, well, that's not fair. The father, you know, Ezekiel 18, go back there again. Ezekiel 18 says so clearly, the soul that sins will die. And the father's not gonna be responsible for the sins of the sons, and the sons are not gonna be responsible for the sins of the father. So it's not Aaron's fault for what these two boys did. He didn't offer strange fire. He didn't say it was okay. Why, why would he think, listen, listen, this is, this is not false guilt. This is holy responsibility for others. And it's what oftentimes a father will feel, but it's like Daniel. Daniel chapter nine, down on his knees, repenting for his people. Daniel is one of two people in the entire Bible, at least that I know of, Daniel and Jesus, where we don't hear about any sin. Now, I'm sure Daniel sinned, and I'm sure Jesus did not. But in the life of Daniel, you wanna talk about a saint, you wanna talk about a faithful follower of God, that's Daniel. But in Daniel chapter nine, he's on his face before the Lord, repenting for his sins and the sins of his people. He's taking personal responsibility for those around him. Ezra does the same thing. Nehemiah does the same thing, repenting and praying for the people, owning what's going on around us, owning the sins of my brothers and sisters, and saying, I'm with them in this, and Lord, together we repent before you, and Jesus did the same thing. Isaiah 53, 11, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I think what's going on here is Aaron was saying, we didn't eat of this because we bear responsibility for my sons but we offered the sin offering and we did not want to even take the possibility, the risk, the hint 
of defiling this because what I felt in my heart, and Aaron's getting something here that's beautiful. Early on in the offerings of Israel, look at verse 20. When Moses heard, it seemed good in his sight. Why? Because Moses heard his brother's broken heart. He heard where Aaron was coming from. And Bonner says, and this is beautiful, get this, he saw that Aaron had entered into the spirit and the meaning of the rites in which he ministered. It wasn't about the exactitude of the rites, it was about what's behind it, what are we doing here? We're offering up a sin offering for the Lord, and I'm a sinner too, Aaron might say, and this is for the people, and this is for what has just taken place, and we all take part in this, and I own this personally, therefore I can't eat this. It's the spirit of the offerings, the heart behind it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants of reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is always, always gracious to those who approach him in humbleness and in holiness. He is not gracious to those who come at him with brazen pride and self-glorification. And whatever else we talk about with this strange fire, let me end with this, the real problem of Nadab and Abihu is obvious in the passage. Whatever the strange fire was, the burning issue is that these two boys hijacked the moment of the glory of God. Watch this. Go back in chapter 9, verse 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. But suddenly, Nadab and Abihu, they decide they want to grab some of the glory for themselves. This is a God's glory moment. And these two sons are over here lighting fire on their fire pans to be part of the thing, to draw some attention onto themselves. It wasn't theirs to take. This was God's moment. This was God's glory. And verse three again, Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be, your Bibles may say honored, the word should be glorified. Ekkavad, I will be glorified. And this is something I think not only the world, but we in the church miss most of all. And this is tough teaching for a pastor. Not tough teaching for a pastor to give, it's tough, tough teaching for a pastor to hear. And here it is God will be glorified, not us, because it's not about us has nothing to do with you looking good or me looking good, with me presenting myself well, or you looking all shiny and clean. It's about God's glory. We live in a celebrity culture. We are sick with celebrity in this culture, and it has affected the church. Priests in training, servants of the Lord, listen to me. Even in fiery times, the glory of God is never ours to confiscate. And sometimes the fiery times happen exactly because we are ignoring the glory of God for the glorification of humanity. 
or the glorification of ourselves. Listen, we can't bear the weight of glory. I've said this so many times, and the examples are replete throughout the history of this nation that child stars always end up messed up because they can't handle glory. We were not made to handle glory. We were not created to be worshiped. We were created to worship, period. And when we get that out of order, we mess ourselves up. The Lord will use tragedy. He'll use burning moments to snuff it out and to say, look, there's one who is glorious and it is God. There's one worth worshiping and it is the Lord Jesus. We can't bear the weight of glory, it's too heavy. We can't even share the glory with him. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters in Christ, other people outside of the church, non-believing people, need to see him as glorified. They need to recognize that we are a people not trying to drum up attention for ourselves. We need to get out of the way and present Jesus Christ as the glorious one. And the burning will bring us back to that, brings us to our knees, reminds us of who is holy. Peter said, beloved, 1 Peter chapter four, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. That is your proving. Remember we talked about recently burning away the chaff, the fiery stuff that comes upon us as though some strange thing were happening to you but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And Jesus so beautifully and simply put it this way, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is how And that is why we continue even to minister through the fire. Father, I pray that you will strip away all that needs stripping away. And I do ask, Lord, that with your tender mercies, you will burn out the chaff in all of our lives. Lord, we talked last week about the wood and the hay and the straw and the stuff that's not eternal, the stuff that's not gonna last. And I pray, Father, you would take that away. I see that happening right now. And Lord, I can't speak for other people. I can speak for myself. I can see the things you're taking away from me in my life, stripping it down to the recognition of your glory and your glory alone. Lord, your word tells us this world is going to recognize your glory we will come to that final conclusion, that understanding that from start to finish, this was about us coming before a glorious God. Father, I pray for anyone who is in trauma, in tragedy, or still has the freshness of the, of the hurting and the wounds, whether it's lost loved ones, or painful circumstances, Father, would you bring the comfort of your Holy Spirit? Would you pour, Father, into hearts and lives the strength that you give? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, give joy where there is sorrow and bring comfort where there is aching. And Lord, as we continue forward 
in the name of Jesus Christ, even in tough things, I pray that your glory would be seen and that what we might have to share with this broken, lost, messed up world is a love of a God of all glory. Be glorified, Father. In Jesus' name.